I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Each and every Ukrainians, whether it's the doctor, journalist, whether it's the scientist, whether it's the teacher or the student, has been fighting for our country. As the war in Ukraine marches into its second year, the notion that every Ukrainian is now a soldier has become painfully common. But this fight is much bigger because the outcome of the Russian full-scale aggression will also shape how the world will look in the decades ahead. That bigger fight features not only soldiers and weapons, but ideas. Russia has been challenging the single principles of democracy, the principles of the international rule-based order and the human rights. Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev, aimed her words at a very specific group with a very specific question. What good is philosophy and the role of the academy in a time of crisis? As Vladimir Putin was charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court, a group of philosophers, historians, and sociologists were convening for an online conference hosted by the University of Toronto. Their mission? To ask what their discipline can offer in a world ravaged by war. We need to be thinking in different ways as to how we cope with this problem of collective agency that we find objectionable and obviously capable of atrocity in today's world. Mihailo Vinitsky joined the conference from Harvard University. Vinitsky is the director of the doctoral school at Ukraine's National University, the Kiev Mohila Academy. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, he's been wrestling with one central question. The question of the existence of evil. Indeed, to quote some authors, I would call my topic an attempt to deal with the riddle of evil, as opposed to the more traditional problem of evil. What has come to be known as the problem of evil has a long philosophical history, generally informed by religious teachings. What is known as theodicy involves addressing this question. How do we reconcile the obvious existence of evil with belief in an all-knowing, all-powerful, and most importantly, fully benevolent God? Perhaps the best-known work on the topic was written by the rationalist philosopher Leibniz, who proposed that the world that God created, though imperfect because of his having granted humans free will, was the best of all possible worlds and therefore consistent with God's benevolence. This conclusion is problematic for a whole host of reasons, but let's leave them aside for now. Unlike Leibniz, I would like to treat the question of the existence or non-existence of evil, not from the perspective of a believer, but rather using scholastic or secular methods. Furthermore, 
I note that the question of whether evil exists as a separate force, having independent agency, or as a deficiency, as Aquinas had it, or universal quality of every human, as Kant claimed, is not a question that is to be considered theoretical, philosophically abstract, or even in any way removed from everyday life. In the Ukraine that I experienced very personally, from late February to early May of last year, evil was very much present in our everyday lives. At that time, my family heard Russian artillery on the outskirts of Kyiv, and we learned to distinguish the sound of a 155mm howitzer from a Hrad multiple-launch rocket system. For us, evil was not an intellectualized idea or even an arguably fabricated mystical concept. Its instantiation in aggression, destruction, and death was very real. As we found out later, our experience was mild. Russian soldiers raped children in nearby Bucha. Russian occupiers murdered civilians in Mariupol and in towns and villages throughout the southern, eastern, and northern regions that experienced occupation. The Russians committed atrocities in Izum, Kherson, Irpin, and countless other towns and cities throughout Ukraine. Were these actions not evil? According to last year's Nobel Peace Prize winner, Alexandra Matvichuk, during 10 months of 2022, spanning March to December, the Center for Civil Liberties, the NGO that she heads, documented over 30,000 cases of war crimes committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. The scale of atrocity is breathtaking. What can be its cause? What's the nature of this evil? Does it possess all humans and therefore represents the dark side of the natural human condition? Or instead is evil a symptom of human imperfection? In other words, a disease, one that like all diseases is eventually curable. How we answer these questions has both far reaching and very immediate consequences. If evil is a deficiency and humans are fundamentally good, then there is no moral ground to consider all Russian occupiers guilty or responsible for Ukraine's suffering. Culpability should be extended only to those who actually committed crimes that cannot be atoned for. Indeed, according to the view that humans are fundamentally good and that evil is simply a disease, even perpetrators of the worst atrocities should be given the opportunity to rehabilitate. Only those who do not repent, or rather cannot be healed, should be punished. This humanistic position, irrespective of its obvious Christian roots, the idea of turn the other cheek, represents a foundational belief underpinning modern values. Since Augustine and Aquinas, Western philosophy has preached that evil is simply the absence of good, that evil has no separate ontology, in the same way as cold does not actually exist, but is merely the absence of heat. So too is evil an absence of good. Hegel and Heidegger supported this claim. For them, evil is privation, deficiency, a condition that is treatable with education, information, counseling, rehabilitation. According to this view, evil has no independent existence. Evil can exist only because of the inadequacy of the human will, as sin or error. It can be treated by medication, education, correction. Sometimes individuals deviate from their natural state of goodness, due to psychological illness, social neglect, inequality, and they do things that are not good. Then they should be helped to right their ways. 
what I've just said is the view that underpins the Western, or at least modern European and North American cultural order. When we declare human rights to be universal, all life to be valued, all individuals worthy of respect. In other words, when we argue in favor of the self-evident philosophical foundations of the institutional order we take for granted, we propagate a fundamental assumption that people are fundamentally good. Now, here's the problem. They're not. Russian soldiers in Ukraine have massacred civilians on their own initiative, without direct orders to do so. Russian soldiers have raped and murdered women, smashed the heads of infants, castrated POWs. Russian field commanders regularly order indiscriminate attacks on civilian houses, schools, hospitals. Why Russians engage in such barbarism is beyond comprehension if one accepts established paradigms. This is not a deficiency. This is a real manifestation of evil, one that the ethical theories on which Western civilization is based simply have difficulty comprehending. I turn to the eminent philosopher Immanuel Kant, who asserted that every human being has an innate propensity to radical evil. Based on my experience, this seems to be a more credible position, though much less comfortable upon introspection. Kant believed that the propensity for radical evil was a consequence of human beings' capacity for free choice. While we have the capacity to choose to act ethically, by which he meant rationally and with respect for autonomy and dignity of the other, we also have the capacity to act out of self-interest and controversially Kant stated that our propensity towards radical evil is a universal characteristic of human nature. It cannot be eliminated entirely. Again, not a particularly comfortable assertion when one places it in the mirror. However, Kant also believed that we have the capacity to overcome or stifle our propensity towards radical evil by using reason to understand ethical principles and by practicing moral actions, we can develop the habit of acting out of a sense of duty and respect for others and thus overcome our natural propensity towards radical evil. Well, that position is comforting. It forms the basis for a personal ethic to be followed by each of us who strives to live a moral life to stifle any evil that might exist within us. But Kant's ethical guidance to ourselves provides little help for understanding empirically observable evil in others. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of the famous Gulag Archipelago, seems to have echoed Kant's position and explained its pitfalls. I quote, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It is, after all, only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't." End quote. Lately, we've heard many voices calling for an end to this war. Certainly, peace is desirable. The killing and destruction should stop. However, for Ukrainians, the peace that eventually follows this war must be a just peace. Universally, Ukrainians believe that the evil that we have faced must be punished, smashed, so that it will not threaten us again. And here we are confronted with a problem. For any peacemaker to admit that one of the parties is evil, lacking good, and the other good, lacking evil, or at least culpability for crimes, 
would amount to failure, the intermediary position would be compromised. But more importantly, the foundational values on which Western institutions are built would be undermined because people are essentially good, so says the dominant paradigm. Some measure of good and evil must be present in both sides of any conflict. Each side is said to have interests that reflect its own interpretations of what is good. The job of a mediator is therefore to find balance between the conflicting parties, to recognize the legitimacy of the interests of each side. In this view, war is never cast as a conflict of good versus evil. Its essence is a differentiation in interpretations of good. War is seen as a disastrous form of misunderstanding. Differences between the warring sides can be healed because both are fundamentally seen as good, or at least more or less equally mistaken. Hence, to mediate means to be impartial, publicly neutral, because both sides have sinned or allowed their inherent evil side to dominate. They must be prompted to see the error of their ways. In the present case, good must be assumed to be present in the actions of Russia and some evil mistakes that can be rectified present on the Ukrainian side. Understandably, this search for balance elicits outrage in Ukraine. Many Ukrainians are asking, when will the world wake up to the evil that is Russia and its regime? Why does the international community insist upon balance when this war is clearly black and white? When will we stop blaming the victim? The very possibility of these questions requires a rethink, in the first place in the West, of foundational beliefs, a recalibration of the paradigm on which international institutions have been constructed. That's not an easy thing to do, but it must be done. Evil must be recognized for what it is and destroyed. In 1946, the International Military Tribunal, which was established at Nuremberg after World War II to prosecute war crimes, crimes against peace and crimes against humanity, stated that aggression is the, quote, supreme international crime because it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole, end quote. By referring to the accumulated evil of the whole, the judges of the tribunal were referring to the harm and suffering that aggression causes not only to the targeted state and its people, but to the entire international community. The harm caused by aggression reverberates through the international system, leading to further conflicts, instability and suffering. Indeed, I would claim this reverberation also affects the philosophical foundations of what we call Western civilization. The very public brutality of Russia's soldiers in Ukraine and the very fact that Russia, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, is engaging in an unprovoked war of aggression, these are not just appalling facts that are to be politically and economically sanctioned. Russia's political leadership has committed the crime of aggression and its orders have been enacted with vigor by its soldiers and supported by its population. To claim that this is a result of brainwashing by state media or that the Russians have been duped into being cruel is to claim that their fundamentally good essences have been infected. This seems as a minimum a stretch. Certainly to those who lived through occupation or witnessed the destruction of war firsthand, the portrayal of Russian military personnel as having even traces of good is problematic. 
throughout the past year and for eight years previously, since 2014, Russian forces, individual soldiers, have been vigorously and passionately destroying Ukrainians and all things Ukrainian in the areas that they have occupied. It seems difficult to see these actions as reflecting the belief that humans, though capable of error, are fundamentally good. Peace will, of course, someday come to Ukraine, and Russian war criminals will be prosecuted. If there is good in every person, as the Augustinian and Aquinian tradition would have us believe, or instead there is evil in every person, as Kant and Solzhenitsyn would have it, should the defense, I was just following orders, be considered sufficient to excuse the perpetrators of atrocities? After all, according to this paradigm, evil and good are characteristics of the human will, which can act ethically or in error. But when an action is not willful, logically, it cannot be good or evil. Can an individual who acted without intent be held responsible for heinous crimes? 20 years ago, in the wake of atrocities committed by Serbs in Bosnia, similar arguments were made to justify the limitation of prosecutions by the International Criminal Court to those giving the orders. There's another solution to the riddle of evil, but it is not particularly pleasing to those of us seeking understanding, peace, and justice. If we see evil as having a separate existence from the human actor, then we may claim that the perpetrators of atrocities were somehow possessed and therefore not responsible, a defense analogous to the idea of temporary insanity. On the positive side, such a position would provide conceptual space for a future peace between Russia and Ukraine. After the personified evil has been destroyed and its supposedly possessed victims released, the innocent people of Russia and Ukraine can live in peace. In the same way as I believe we need a secular account of ethics and morality, we need a secular explanation for evil. Evil not as a transgression or error, but evil as a driver of action, of what we sociologists call agency. In a mystic world, that agency would be anthropomorphized in a devil or Satan figure. But we're not mystics. The problem remains. What is the quality and where is the agency of evil? At the end of the day, I, I have to admit that I'm more sociologist than philosopher. But I think it's important for us to understand that in the same way as the concept of agency was once attributed to individuals and in sociology has now become attributed also to collectivities, corporations, uh, these types of things. When we talk about evil as something that is a driving force for action, it doesn't necessarily have to be a characteristic of the individual as a, if you like, a carrier of agency or a person of free will. Traditionally, that is how we've been looking at evil. Evil and good have been characteristics of individuals and characteristics of actions of those individuals. But if we now look at collective action and we look at something that is happening, be it at an institutional level, at a national level, at the level of an organization called an army, obviously actions are still individually based but they are very often driven by an agency that is not individual at all. Agency becomes abstract. If we now talk about the fact that evil and good are characteristics of an abstract agency, then we have a problem of where is it housed? 
Do we go back to mysticism and early Christianity where supposedly evil is housed in a devil or Satan that now possesses individuals? Or can we talk about something that's a little bit more complex, meaning a characteristic of a collective agency? This causes problems because then the issue is, do we now attribute collective responsibility? Because if we have a collective agency, then presumably we can also talk about a collective responsibility. But our institutions are always based on individual responsibility. Crimes and punishment are always individual rather than collective. The issue that we're experiencing today is an obvious collective force, meaning that evil and good are characteristics of collectivities or corporations or nations or group actions. And if they're group actions, then the evil and the good as characteristics of those actions needs to have another basis other than just individualism. Of course, the agency is enacted through the actions of individuals, but those individual actions don't have any kind of force unless they have a collectivity behind them. So we can talk about a collective agency, and if we can talk about a collective agency, that we can also say that that agency has a characteristic of being ethical and working by rules, or being evil and therefore working by different rules. What we're seeing in the actions of Russian soldiers in Ukraine, I would say, is a collective agency. Where's the collective responsibility? And that now becomes an institutional problem that, that is an interpretation of our philosophical foundations of Western civilization. I'm afraid that today I've posed more questions than answers, but that too is the job of a public intellectual, to voice the thoughts and fears underlying public discourse. During the past year, Ukrainians have experienced evil firsthand. As Europeans, educated and accultured in a humanistic ethic, we have seen and felt an agency of that which we cannot explain. Russian barbarism and spiteful cruelty in Ukraine is beyond comprehension. For the time being, we are coping with this riddle by dehumanizing the enemy. We call them orcs, rashists, version of fascists, muskali, but the war will end, and they will again be our neighbors. How will we move forward? How will we coexist? Who or what will we agree is guilty for what has been done and why? Clearly, the extent of destruction, callousness, and brutality will require compensation and prolonged healing. But do we actually understand what in fact needs to be healed? I fear that without a profound philosophical understanding of the roots of the evil agency that Ukrainians have suffered through during this war, the phrase never again, which supposedly was to be the unifying slogan for elites and institutions after World War II, will yet again ring hollow at some point in the future. Ukrainian scholar Mihailo Vinitsky delivered his thoughts at a public conference titled What Good is Philosophy? organized by the University of Toronto to raise funds for his home university, Ukraine's Kiev Mohila Academy. Philosopher Aaron Wendland, who organized and hosted the event, had this to say about its mission. My background is in the history of philosophy and in continental philosophy. And one of the most influential thinkers uh, on my work is a Jewish philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas. Uh, he's a Holocaust survivor, 
And he is famous for the idea that ethics is infinitely demanding. And to explain what he means by this, I think all we have to do is sort of look around in the world. There's a war in Ukraine. Um, there was recently heavy fighting in Ethiopia. Afghan women are seriously oppressed. Um, there was a major earthquake in Turkey. Perhaps closer to home, there's a homelessness crisis in many North American cities. And I'm sure everyone knows someone who is ill or could use some form of help. So there is an infinite amount of things we could potentially do to help others. And this is kind of what Levinas means by saying that ethics is infinitely demanding. There's an infinite demand on our capacity for ethical action. But what Levinas notes is that although there might be an infinite demand on our capacity to act ethically, we are finite and limited human beings. He takes this notion from Kierkegaard, who has a lot to say about human finitude. But the basic idea is, although there might be infinite demands on my ability to act ethically, my abilities are actually limited. I'm a finite human being. There's only so much I can do. And at this point, Levinas kind of draws on the work of a German philosopher named Martin Heidegger, who talks about our thrownness into a particular situation. So as human beings, we always find ourselves in a particular place at a particular point in time. And this is the space for our ethical action. Um, we work within this sort of limited sphere that we've been thrown into. As of today, 170 Ukrainian institutions of higher education have been damaged by the fighting and the war. Uh, some 20 have been completely destroyed. And uh, I have to say that Ukrainian students, scholars, and publicly engaged academics continue to do their work in Ukraine under very difficult circumstances. For example, at Kiev Mohila Academy, uh, the oldest university in Ukraine, students were volunteering their time to visit elderly people whose families had left the country or whose children were fighting on the front lines. Uh, postdocs were running public lectures on Ukrainian history to counter Russian propaganda. Psychology professors were volunteering their time and expertise to counsel their fellow citizens who had spent time under Russian occupation in Irpin and Bucha. And Ukrainian philosophers and political scientists were volunteering their expertise to the international media. They were commenting on Ukrainian history and politics and culture. And they were doing a service not only to foreign correspondents, but to the international community as a whole. And this work was very inspiring. Ukrainians saw themselves as fighting for things that we value, freedom, democracy. These are things that, that they value and that they are fighting for. And this in some ways means that Ukraine's fight is our fight insofar as we're committed to freedom and democracy. You're listening to Ideas. We're heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, 
across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. The large-scale atrocities committed by Russian forces in Ukraine over the past year, at least 30,000 war crimes, according to one source, have lent new urgency to questions that philosophers have been asking for centuries about the nature of evil. During the past year, Ukrainians have seen and felt an agency of that which we cannot explain. Russian barbarism and spiteful cruelty in Ukraine is beyond comprehension. For Ukrainian sociologist Mihailo Vinitsky, philosophy may not be able to explain the cruelties that defy comprehension, but it can help us pose new questions to confront the horrors of war. The very possibility of these questions requires a rethink of foundational beliefs, a recalibration of the paradigm on which international institutions have been constructed. That's not an easy thing to do, but it must be done. Evil must be recognized for what it is and destroyed. Confronting that evil is something that philosopher Jason Stanley does by studying language. The way it's used and abused even before the first shot is fired. Entering analytic philosophy, I was compelled first by the role language plays in such events. I wanted to understand how language can draw emotion, can foment antagonism. His compulsion to understand how language incites antagonism has put propaganda in his crosshairs. Philosophy has always wrestled with these questions of democracy. It has always wrestled with the question of how democracies can be stable in the face of propaganda. Jason Stanley specializes in the philosophy of language at Yale University. He's also the author of a book entitled How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. The question that many philosophers have faced in the democratic political philosophy tradition is how to retain democracy in the face of threats to it, how to recognize the attractions that a structure like fascism poses, that tyrants pose to democracy. In the early months of the war in Ukraine, he addressed a virtual audience at the Kyiv School of Economics with a pointed speech about matters usually confined to the lecture hall, but had now entered the theater of war. During his talk, airstrikes forced students to take shelter, right at the time when a new front was opening up in the war between information and disinformation. A lot of disinformation takes the form of just communicating information. Similarly, other things we call disinformation, uh, vaccine conspiracy theories, panics about critical race theory, panics about supposed atrocities done to ethnic Russians. Uh, these are methods to build identity. 
they're not really methods to communicate information or even disinformation. They're rather there to stir up emotions. And in fact, this is the point of a lot of political speech. You know, if you have a model, an approach to speech that is only trying to, to explain uh, communicating information, you know, you're, you're going to miss out on the fact that the most famous and preserved aspects of speech are political speeches. Uh, these speeches evoke emotion. They connect identity with values and ideals. And that's something that, to say the least, is hard to model. Propaganda involves social meaning. Social meaning is not, you know, a, a proposition. It's not, you know, dogs bark. It's a set of emotions, symbols. And then we need to think about how being inside a group or outside a group, how identity affects communication. And that's something that's not just a matter of the propositions asserted. Generally, in the theory of meaning, we've been focusing just on what happens when people in the same group talk to each other. But what about group formation? What about speech that's meant to form a group? You know, you might think that spreading conspiracies about vaccines is an attempt to spread information um, or disinformation. But what if it's instead a method of just forming a group? This is our group. These are the kinds of things we say. Nearly a year later, Jason Stanley spoke to a different group, at a University of Toronto conference entitled, What Good is Philosophy? For him, that question isn't theoretical. It's deeply personal. I'm the child of two Holocaust survivors, and I entered the field of philosophy with one question, and that was why. How can a democratic society slide so rapidly into fascism, war, and mass killing? You might think that the austere structures of analytic philosophy would be a poor avenue to pursue these questions. But historically, these questions are at the very center of our field. Fascism itself is a concept that is novel. It requires nationalism. It requires European nationalism for its understanding. But it's an anti-democratic formation. It's an anti-democratic formation whose original essence can be traced back to the concepts in Book 8 of Plato's Republic and his reply to the dangers of democracy and his argument that democracy leads straightforwardly to tyranny. A tyrant, Plato argues, can achieve great popularity by constantly fomenting war and split the population and draw support for his own tyranny. And these are structures that we see investigated in the field of philosophy time and time again through the centuries since Plato. Philosophy is indeed footnotes to Plato in this regard. But entering analytic philosophy, I was compelled first by the role language plays in such events. I wanted to understand how language can draw emotion, can foment antagonism. Instead, I spent many years studying the abstract formal features of language, and it has taken me decades to circle back around to the questions that first brought me into this field. But I want to emphasize that that time spent with the austere structures 
with the exactness of this field has enabled my work to, I hope, speak to these questions of fundamental structural importance. Topics at the very heart of the Ukraine war, fascism, ultranationalism, colonialism, democracy. What the Ukraine war represents to the world is the threat democratic regimes pose to the kind of self-glorification that is at the very basis of a fascist regime. And Vladimir Putin's Russia is, I take it, the paradigm example right now of a fascist regime. So what I have done, the path I've taken over the past 15 years now, is to try to apply the lessons I learned and the tools and methods I learned in my philosophical training to understand how propaganda can turn people against democracy, how propaganda can be used, how speech and propaganda from politicians, from a public, can turn people against freedom, equality, equal mutual respect for other groups. These questions have been explored in traditions, have been continuously explored in traditions not my own, uh, in continental philosophy. But I firmly believe that my own tradition of analytic philosophy has something to bring to bear to these questions. When you look at something like propaganda, you're looking at the relationship between attitudes, structures, and speech. How attitudes, structures, and speech can combine to do something anti-democratic or democratic, but can have an effect. So you can't look at these structures in isolation. You have to look at them together. Now, what I found very early on was that people who are subject to propaganda, like the Ukrainian population, is very aware of things that, if you're not subject to that population, might take you years to figure out. So I was first invited to Kiev in 2017 to keynote the School of Political Thoughts annual conference. And I spoke on propaganda, and I found that my audience was extremely conversant with the methods of propaganda. The things that I had been studying theoretically, they had experienced practically. And so there's a serious question of how much we can do theoretically, because being subject to the forces that we investigate theoretically gives you the kind of lesson you can't get in the university alone. But I think it's vital to see that philosophy has always been about, it has always wrestled with these questions of democracy. It has always wrestled with a question of how democracies can be stable in the face of propaganda. Plato's challenge to democracy was that democracy is not a stable system. Because democracy is a system that allows anyone to run for office, and a leader will run who foments internal and external enemies, and is constantly at war, as Plato says, constantly foments war as a means of drawing support. This is why you find fascist leaders constantly driven towards war and often very popular because of it. So much democratic political philosophy is devoted to solving this problem, responding to this problem. Rousseau, in his work, is looking at how democracy is possible in the face of this issue. And his answer is to inure a population to the temptations 
of ultranationalism, of high self-regard for their own identities, by an education system that foments amour de soi rather than amour proper. So why is it today that the Russian people have been so conditioned to respond to Ukrainian independence as a fundamental threat to their identity? Because, as I've argued in my writings on Ukraine in the last year, the Russian identity has been formed to structure Ukrainian independence as a fundamental threat, Ukrainian identity as an existential threat. So what we've seen in Russian propaganda, such as what Timothy, historian Timothy Snyder calls Russia's genocide handbook, what should Russia do with Ukraine? The goal there is to say the idea that Ukraine is an independent people, that idea that they're not just other Russians is a fundamental threat to the very existence of Russian identity. And so what I've tried to do in my theoretical work is explain how people can be drawn to this kind of propaganda, to be sending their children to death in a battle for this ideological construct. And the history of philosophy, the history of democratic political philosophy, much of the history is about how you resist this. Rousseau's Emile is how we construct people, how we have an education system, so people will not respond to these attempts to make them identify themselves in terms of hatred of the other. So the way I've been using my philosophical toolkit, my philosophical toolkit in philosophy of language, nurtured through analytic philosophy, but supplanted by our long history, is try to sketch out the preconditions for mass killing, the preconditions for the end of democracy, uh, the preconditions for fascism. And sadly, this work is not just of historical resonance, it's of great resonance right now as we face a global fascist movement. Drawing on the history of philosophy, drawing on figures like Rousseau, like Dewey, whose work helped in denazification post-World War II. It aided the German people in coming to an understanding of a democratic education. I've drawn on that long history of philosophy that thinks about how people are use self-regard, how leaders use self-regard, national pride, other kinds of pride, pride in monarchy and dynasties, the forms of pride that existed before 19th century European nationalism. I've tried to draw on those to illuminate not just the conditions that lead to mass killing uh, and the conditions that lead to the abandonment of democracy, but also increasingly the solutions. So I personally have used philosophy as the basis for my public facing work. I've been writing on Ukraine for uh, many of the world's newspapers, from Foya de Sao Paulo to The Guardian and others, trying to frame the importance of the fight we face, the world faces in Ukraine, which is, I think, a battle between the kind of self-regarding imperialist ultranationalism that is the form of the threat to democracy today to democratic autonomy, which is what Ukraine represents. So that struggle in some form or other is really the foundation of our discipline.
Um, it's really how democratic political philosophy arises in response to that struggle and trying to inure us and protect us from the temptations to abandon democracy for high self-regard. The transmission of information is one core function of language, but equally important is the formation of social identity. And the formation of social identity is not done via some derivative method by conveying information. The formation of social identity is done by simply sharing a language. So you can set up the very existence of Ukrainian language as a threat. You know, we often think of nationalism as based on race, but Fichte's addresses to the German nation centers German greatness on the greatness of the German language. And so, you know, the very fact that the Ukrainian language is taken as such a threat that the areas under Russian control, they extinguish the Ukrainian language, they put everything into Russian, shows you that reflection of nationalism. So simply speaking the same language, speaking the same vernacular, is a way of creating a joint social identity, eliminating an opposing language. Like the very fact that these people, the Russian Empire is saying we're always Russians, speak a different language is meant as an affront. Another structure that is happening is using language to erase a history that demarcates the Ukrainian people as having a distinct cultural history and tradition, uh, particularly one of oppression. So Holodomor was a famine directed by Stalin against the Ukrainian people. The Russians have uh, a historic responsibility implicated in that genocide. Russia has used certain techniques to mask that. They've argued that it was an administrative error. The famine targeted everyone. It was a bureaucratic error. They've used certain kinds of linguistic explanations to try to mask the ethnic targeting. A way of speaking can presuppose a shared social identity. Similarly, accommodation, which is when you accommodate to the speech of others, someone makes a presupposition that you didn't know and you straight away accept that presupposition. We have a more general notion of accommodation as harmonization. So you don't just accept the presuppositions, you accept the what we call attunements, the emotions you're supposed to feel. In mass politics, when someone is talking to you, they're asking you to accept certain emotions. And so you have to broaden this to talk about social identity, emotions, and practices. To be Russian, the Russian propaganda tells us, is to revel in the suffering and extinction of Ukrainians. And that reveling is not just a matter of information. It's presupposing and accommodating social identities, emotions, and practices. Russian propaganda functions by creating a genocidal antagonistic group. It tries to define Russian identity in contradistinction to Ukraine. To be Russian is to eliminate Ukrainians. And it overlaps, is very similar to Nazi talk about Jews. Nazi talk about Jews defines the great enemy of Aryans as the world Jewish conspiracy. So this is not foreign to philosophy, this kind of investigation. Uh, the, the question for us, the question that many philosophers have faced in the democratic political philosophy tradition is how to retain democracy in the face of threats to it, how to recognize the attractions 
that a structure like fascism poses or monarchy, that tyrants pose to democracy. So my work has been entirely devoted in the last 15 years to this question, to this question of how how you get a group of people who clearly don't benefit themselves in any material way from abandoning democracy and entering mass killing of another group, uh, nevertheless to do that and to understand that it is a constant human temptation. People tell me, oh, well, why is this philosophy? And my response is, this has always been philosophy. This has been the heart of our discipline from its inception in Athens. Topics like colonialism, imperialism, that right now the Ukraine war faces, are topics that are at the center of classical Greek thought. Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War, is all about democracy, oligarchy, and colonialism. Athens was simultaneously a democracy and an empire. In Cleon's speech in the Mytilinian debate, where Cleon is asking the Athenian people, he's pleading with them to massacre the entire population, Mytilinian population. His argument is that you cannot be both a democracy and an empire. You have to choose. That speech is the oldest example, the prime example of Greek demagoguery. The prime example of Greek demagoguery poses an opposition between democracy and empire, between imperial brutality, mass killing, and democratic values. And Cleon sets those out in opposition. And to me, he's not wrong. He just made the wrong choice. And those issues, going back to those issues and emphasizing that philosophy has always been about those issues and democratic political philosophy, democratic political philosophy is devoted to showing how we can protect democracy from the temptations of imperialism, empire, and tyrants. I view the philosophical life as a life that is lived in two worlds. You must simultaneously pay attention to what's going on in the world and it must inform your philosophical practice, and your philosophical work must be devoted to elucidating and helping understand what is going on, not by lecturing those subject to it, who, as I discovered from my time in Ukraine in 2017, are well aware of how propaganda undermines democracy, but by centering their voices. In my case, I center the, I try to center the voices of the national minority threatened in my country, who've been, always been working on these topics, the black intellectual tradition. But to try to explain that we all face these threats, it's not something that happens in a foreign country, but sometimes, as in this moment today, what is happening in foreign lands is and should be the center of this age-old philosophical tension between democracy on the one hand and imperialist mass killing and brutality on the other. You've been listening to American philosopher Jason Stanley. Professor Stanley is the author of multiple books, including How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Earlier in the episode, you heard a talk by Ukrainian sociologist Mihailo Vinitsky, the director of Ukraine's Kiev Mohila Academy. Both talks were originally delivered as part of a benefit conference entitled What Good is Philosophy? 
organized by the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. All proceeds from that conference will go toward the establishment of a Centre for Civic Engagement at the Kiev Mohila Academy in an effort to support academic and civil society in post-war Ukraine. Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev, was among those in attendance, and she spoke out about the importance of protecting her country's scholars and academic institutions. We really are living in a time of crisis. In the time when the core values and the core beliefs that makes us all of the citizens of the world live happily has been challenged. And Russia has been challenging the single principles of democracy, the principles of the international rule-based order and the human rights. But Russia has already strategically lost in Ukraine. And each and every Ukrainians, whether it's the doctor, journalist, whether it's the scientist, whether it's the teacher or the student, has been fighting for our country. But indeed, this fight is much bigger because the outcome of the uh, Russian full-scale aggression will also shape the way how the world will look like in the decades ahead. Russian aggression to Ukraine has brought a lot of challenges to our education. 7,000 scholars have unfortunately fled Ukraine, and thousands more have been displaced within the country. To the date, over 170 colleges and universities in Ukraine have been damaged, and more than 20 of them have been completely destroyed. And many of these members of uh, Ukrainian armed forces are coming from the academia sector. Teachers, the researchers, and students, the young students who should have been educating this time and who should have spent their time in universities. But instead of that, they are spending their time in trenches, protecting our country and protecting democracy all over the world. But the important thing, the academia is keeping on education because the education, as we see in this war, is a very important tool for us, both to share with the world for what we are fighting for, but also to deal with the massive Russian disinformation that is flooding both in Ukraine and many countries. Each and every contribution will make not only Ukrainian students, not only Ukrainian teachers, but also the broader Ukrainian society stronger, both resisting the aggressor, but also afterwards, after our victory on rebuilding Ukraine. This episode of Ideas was produced by Annie Bender, with special thanks to conference organizers Aaron Wendland and Jamie Napier. Technical production, Austin Pomeroy. The web producer of Ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.